Welcome to Women Rule. I'm Carrie Budoff-Brown, editor of Politico and host of this podcast. If you're a regular listener of Women Rule, you probably know by now that women make up only 20% of Congress and hold just one in four elected offices nationwide. Earlier this week, Politico published an investigation into that political gender gap. If you haven't read our report yet, please do that now. It's a seriously fascinating look into women's motivations to run for office and what we can all do to get more women elected. Today, we have a bonus episode for you based on that comprehensive report. You'll hear my friend and colleague, Louisa Savage, the editorial director for Politico Live, talk to two women deeply involved in the project, journalist Amanda Ripley and American University professor Jennifer Lawless. Stay tuned to hear all about what they found after months of research and interviews. As always, if you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on iTunes, rate us, and leave a review. Feel free to share our episodes on social media and follow me on Twitter at C. Rudolph Brown. Women Rule is produced by Politico in partnership with Google and the Tory Birch Foundation. Now let's hear from Louisa Savage, Amanda Ripley, and Jennifer Lawless. Hi, I'm Louisa Savage, Editorial Director of Politico Live, and I'm here at Politico headquarters this morning with two women digging into the place of women in politics in the aftermath of the last election. With me is Amanda Ripley, a book author, journalist, and the woman behind Politico's big new investigation into where are we losing women in the political pipeline. Welcome, Amanda. Thanks. Good to be here. And also with us is a woman who knows more about women running for office than just about anyone in the country, and that is Jennifer Lawless, a professor of government at American University here in Washington, D.C., and the director of the Women in Politics Institute at the university. Her research focuses on political ambition and the gender gap. She's written books such as Women on the Run, Running from Office, Why Young Americans Are Turned Off of Politics, and Becoming a Candidate. So we're here uh, with Jennifer to figure out this issue of what it's going to take to increase the representation of women in elected office. So welcome, Jennifer, and thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. So we did a poll together, Politico and American partnered, to figure out what is going on with women out in the country Uh, in the aftermath of the election. We've seen the big political marches. We've seen women in the streets, women signing petitions. What is that translating into in terms of women's interest in running for office? Well, first, let me just mention also that Richard Fox and Loyola Marymount University were partners in the poll. He'll kill me if that doesn't (laughs) get stated. Um, In terms of the main result, we found that consistent with what we see in the newspaper, what we see on cable news, what we read on the Internet, Democratic women do seem to be activated by Donald Trump. They're marching more. They're engaged in the political process more. They're participating. They're sending in checks. They're communicating via social media at greater rates than male Democrats and at greater rates than male and female Republicans. Whether that activism is translating into political ambition, though, is a more complicated story. Um, The poll showed a significant increase from before the election. I mean, how big was it? Right. Well, we asked people to tell us 
since the election, whether they'd done a series of things like attend the Women's March, donate to a political interest group, support a candidate, communicate via social media. We also asked them to self-report how frequently they did those things prior to the 2016 election. And for Democratic women, we saw an increase of about four times. So whereas typically between 10 and 11 percent of people would engage in those kinds of activities, we saw almost 40 percent of Democratic women engaging in several of them. Wow. And what did you find about Republican women? For Republican women, there really seemed to be no boost. So prior to 2016, Republican women and Democratic women, Republican men and Democratic men all participated at roughly the same rates. Republicans, women and men alike, stayed at those levels throughout 2016 and the early stages of the Trump presidency. It's Democrats who were more motivated to get engaged, and it's especially women on the Democratic side who took that leap. And yet the polls still found a big gender gap when it came to actual interest and ambition in running for office. Can you talk about that a bit? That's right. So what we've been seeing out there is heightened activism and certainly increased interest in the political process. The assumption was that that meant that more and more women were also going to be interested in running for office. And one of the upsides, at least as far as Democrats were concerned, of the Trump presidency is that he would close this gender gap in political ambition. What we actually found was that when we asked people, have you ever considered running for office, the overall gender gap in political ambition in 2017 looks very much like it did in 2001, 2008, and 2011, where women are significantly less likely than men ever to consider running and are only about half as likely to say that they have future plans to do so. So it's a little bit smaller on the Democratic side than it is on the Republican side, which suggests that maybe there's a small Trump effect, but it's certainly not the same level and the same magnitude as we're seeing from more mass levels of participation. So women are out there, they're signing petitions, they're Facebooking, they're getting out into the streets at at demonstrations. That doesn't mean we should expect a big influx of women into elected office. Right. I would say two things to that. The first is the story of my mother. Uh, She's a 70-year-old woman. She's politically active. She was always interested in politics. The Trump presidency has sent her, like, overboard. She watches TV news constantly. She knows every political analyst. She knows every political pundit. She knows every argument that's out there. She's given more to political candidates. She attends rallies. She came down to D.C. for the Women's March. And I asked her recently, well, given all of this newfound activism, would you ever be interested in running for office? And knowing I do this for a living, right? This is what my research has been for 20 years. She laughed at me and said, of course not. I would never run. And I think that that's what's common out there, right? There are women who are really interested and really engaged, but But running for office is a totally different kind of animal. And we shouldn't necessarily expect that just heightened interest is going to translate into political ambition. The other point I would make, though, is that women's organizations on the Democratic side of the aisle are very attentive to the Trump presidency. And I think they're realizing that this is an opportunity for them to engage in very targeted political recruitment and find women who might ordinarily not consider running and encourage them to run. That's why I think we might very well see a record number of female candidates, but it's not just this it's, it's not going to grow organically the way some of this activism had. It's coupled with very targeted recruitment strategies on the part of the organizations and the political gatekeepers that want to seize the moment. Well, it was very striking in your poll that the gender gap in political ambition was 15 percentage points between men and women, and that this was consistent with previous polls before the election Um, where men were twice as likely as women to have seriously considered running. And I think that is really what 
drove us to launch this investigation here at Politico into why is it that we're so stalled? Um, this election, despite all the attention on the Hillary Clinton candidacy, actually saw women stall out uh, on Capitol Hill at 20 percent of the House and Senate. And we see that nationwide, that there aren't big leaps and bounds uh, happening in terms of women being elected to office. And and that's why we brought in Amanda. Uh, several months ago, you started a big research project and big investigation for us into where are those key points uh, along the political pipeline where women just fall off, fall out, don't keep going. And I thought your research, um, the, the things that you came out with were just fascinating. So can you sort of walk us through um, what we need to understand about where politics is actually losing women? You know, going into this, I had my own assumptions, like most of us, about why there aren't more women in elected office. And it was surprising to see how many of them were wrong. <laughs> it turns out that, you know, as Jen's work has shown, the media coverage, particularly for races below that of president and vice president, the media coverage is not obviously biased against women anymore. Um, there, you know, there's no there's no evidence that women have a harder time fundraising, although there is... I mean, is that, that's, that's interesting because we keep hearing that, that right. women just can't raise the money. Can you talk a little bit more about what you found on the fundraising? Yeah, everybody I interviewed in, in politics or considering running insisted that women have a harder time raising money and that this is a, this is a real challenge, that their networks, um, on average, might be less affluent or interested in giving to a political candidate, or maybe it's harder for them to ask for the money. And there's a lot of interesting theory around this, some of which makes a lot of sense just intuitively. But uh, Barbara Burrell, who's done probably the most comprehensive database analyzing U.S. house races going back to the 1980s, she told me, look, there's just, there's just no evidence that women have a harder time raising money. They might get smaller donations on average, but there's no evidence that they then have to work harder. They also get big donations. So it's really interesting to look at the gap between people's perception, particularly women's perception, of the bias that they will face in the political arena and the reality. Now, that's not to say that they don't face any bias or that things are set up for smooth sailing. I mean, it's obviously not the case. Obviously, campaigns cost far too much money in the United States for men and women. So there's right. a lot of obstacles. But so we found it's not fundraising. It's not media coverage. Um, and it's not some of the other myths that are out there are that voters won't vote for women. But you didn't find that either. No. So those things aren't the actual reasons why women aren't winning. The reasons are, are that women aren't running. So when women run, they tend to win at the same rate as men. So the problem starts a little earlier. And in fact, it may start as early as when you're a kid, you know, because what Jen has found and her colleagues have found is that, you know, parents are more likely to suggest to their sons that maybe one day they should run for office still. even And, though, and, and the data says twice as likely, which yeah. was stunning to me. Just stunning. <laughs> right. Twice as likely. Right. And it's funny. I mean, I don't know if you've reflected on this in your own life, but working on this piece, it occurred to me that never once for a single second have I ever thought about running for office and and nor will I but it's just funny to think I mean I majored in political science like but I, I write about politics but never once it even like passed my brain did it ever occur to you like did you ever grow up and someone was like Louisa one day you could be president <laughs> <laughs> well I do remember in uh, junior high school running um, a campaign we had a free trade election 
as a school exercise. I think I was the head of the protectionist party. <laughs> we, we, we were assigned. This is your moment. We won. <laughs> nice. as, yeah, it was fun. Um, so it's, it's all about this political ambition gap that women have. It's, in a way, it's a, it's a self-imposed limitation is what your project suggested, which was really quite eye-opening. Right. And I mean, it's a little bit even more than that, I would say, because, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine and we were having lunch and I was saying I was working on this story. Why don't women run? And she said, maybe women are just smarter. You know, so so it's not just that women lack aspiration to run. It's that they don't want to. I mean, they don't think the job is worth doing. They they think it's more uh, painful than than helpful. If they thought it actually would make the world a better place and they had a chance of winning, I think you'd see sky high ambition. And this is where, Jen, I, I mean, I wonder if you, I do sometimes feel a little funny even using the word ambition or, or that saying that this is self-imposed because it is self-imposed, but it's also like, you know, it, it's sort of misunderstanding, right? Like women, if women actually understood the job more and men for that matter and understood the odds more then maybe they wouldn't choose this option yeah I mean I think for the last 15 or 16 years I've grappled with the term political ambition and for my purposes it's just interest in running for office because the women who are well situated to run are clearly ambitious in other realms of their lives they're successful lawyers and business leaders and educators and political activists they've managed to reconcile dual roles in the household and at work. So there's not a lack of ambition per se, but there is this lack of interest in running for office. And the reason I tend not to think of it as self-imposed is because I think that it's a rational response to a political environment that they perceive to be biased against female candidates. And so while it's true that when women run, they receive similar media coverage and they raise just as much money and they're just as likely to garner the votes, if nobody out there knows that, and if potential female candidates don't know that, then they tend to think that they would have to be twice as good to get half as far to operate successfully in that kind of environment. Nobody is suggesting to them that they run for office, or significantly fewer people are suggesting to them that they run, which is a way to mitigate some of their own concerns about their perceived lack of qualifications. And so it's internal, and the decision process is internal, but I tend to shy away from words like self-imposed because it's a rational response given what people perceive the political arena to be like. Mm-hmm. And Amanda, what what came out of your project and these months that you spent talking to researchers like Jennifer, visiting um, training sessions for potential candidates, interviewing women who are considering and deciding to run for office, was sort of a recipe for how we could get more women to run for office in order to raise um, the representation of women in uh, elected bodies. And, and I thought it was very interesting that your your recipe, um, if you can share it with, with us, um, starts very, very early. Right. So there were three areas that we felt like, based on our conversations with much smarter people, that, that are being underutilized right now that could help get more women in office. One is to start sooner, like you said. So um, if we know that parents are more likely to suggest to their boys that they one day run for office, well, that that's a very powerful influence. And if maybe more parents knew about that, maybe they would make the same suggestion to their daughters, maybe not. But certainly there are now some organizations that are trying to train younger women, women in high school and college, trying to get to them before the gender gap really opens up, which, uh, as Jen and her colleagues have found, seems to really happen in, in college. So men and women get onto campus with the same 
same low levels of political ambition. And at that point, men go up in political ambition and women never do. So this is a huge opportunity freshman year for political parties, organizations, advocates to go in and start educating women about the very things we've been talking about, about the fact that, you know, you do have a shot at winning, you can raise money. And this is a way, look, we may not like the way politics look right now. And I get that. This is how you change it. You have to get at the table. There's 500,000 elected offices in the United States, half a million. Most of them are never yelling at each other on C-SPAN. They're not, you know, having to raise a million dollars. There's state and local offices that are really filling they have to get things done. Right. And, and, and the irony is that you also um, found some results from a big survey of women lawmakers by Rutgers University that actually shows that when women do get elected, they actually do get more done because they're more willing to work across the aisle and, and tackle um, problems, sponsor legislation. So it's almost a, a self-fulfilling prophecy if, if that data is true. Right. I mean, it's really hard to measure effectiveness of lawmakers, but certainly when Rutgers interviewed a large number of women in Congress, they, on both sides of the aisle, were very insistent that they tend to get things done in a way that some of their male colleagues, not all, but some of them don't. And part of it is that the reason they came into office was to solve problems, you know, and, th and that's pretty consistent in the research. So in surveys of state legislators and, and other politicians, when you ask them why they entered political, the political arena, women are more likely to say it was for a specific policy issue or to work on schools or some specific problem, whereas men are more likely to say it was to fulfill a lifelong dream. So if, if what you really want is to be Speaker of the House because you've, you know, stood in front of a mirror and imagined it since you were 12, um, that's going to lead to a difference set of, of political behaviors than if what you really want is uh, all day kindergarten for your city, right? Like that's a different, that's a different mindset. It's not, doesn't mean women are better, nicer. I definitely don't want to suggest that. It just means that given their experiences in the world, they might be motivated a little differently. And certainly in Congress, because there are fewer of them, ironically, they know each other better. They have dinners together. They play on the, when the men play the softball team, it's, it's D's versus versus ours. When the women play, it's it's the women members of Congress, Democrats and Republicans versus the press, right? <laughs> so they have relationships, right. which is how you get things done. Well, Jennifer, so we've talked about women falling off um, in childhood, in college. Um, and then the, the research shows also in their careers and the way that they're recruited. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, when, when potential candidates were asked, has anybody ever suggested that you run for office. And we asked about a lot of different sources. We asked about party leaders, elected officials, political activists, but also family members, colleagues, and friends. We found that on every single indicator, um, dating back to about 2001, in general, women were about a third less likely than men to receive that suggestion to run for office from anyone. A third less about likely. About a third less likely. Now, part of this, I think, is because of the perception that women are doing it all. Now, we found interestingly, and I think pretty counterintuitively, that the women who are already operating in these high-level professional circles are also responsible for the majority of the household work and child care in a way that their male counterparts are not. But that is not affecting their interest in running for office. It might very well, though, be affecting recruiters' interest in recruiting women to run because they might think that women can't do it all. Um, the other thing that happens, I think, is 
as you acquire more and more money and as your career becomes increasingly lucrative, you're less likely to run because the trade-offs are bigger. And that's the case for women and men. So ironically, as women are becoming more and more self-sufficient and as they're climbing the career ladders in their own fields, they're also making more and more money, which makes those trade-offs for them a little bit more real as well. So recruitment is probably the easiest way to begin to nudge them. And do you think um, it's true that what we hear that women need to be asked more times than men before they'll take the leap? No. And it's so frustrating to me because I think that's a myth that has grown out of my research and some statements that I had made anecdotally. So I've we know that when women are recruited to run for office and they perceive that they've been recruited to run, they're as likely as men to respond favorably to that recruitment. Anecdotally, there have been cases where women have told me about stories where, to me, it seems like they've been recruited. And when I ask them if they've ever been recruited to run, they say, oh, no, no, the mayor wasn't serious. He didn't really mean that I should run. And so you know, I think I've probably said over time, look, if we think a woman needs to hear this seven times or 17 times or 87 times, let's tell her that we're serious. But really all I mean by saying that is we need to make sure that we're making the message about recruitment resonate. And maybe that message needs to look different for women and men. Maybe we need to say to a woman, look, I'm really, really serious. It's not necessarily that she needs to hear it more times. It's that we need to ensure that she knows that we're not just blowing smoke. And we believe that she'd be good at running for office and ultimately legislating or being an executive or serving in whatever elected position she'd seek. Okay. So women are falling off in childhood, in college, in recruitment once they're in their careers. And then the fourth area that that we found in this project, Amanda, that was so interesting was that there actually is one training ground for candidates where women are almost at parity, um, and that is school boards. Can you talk a bit about that? Right. So it turns out that school boards are the closest thing we've got to gender parity in elected office in the U.S. There's not great data, but the best data we could find suggests that about 40 percent of school board members are women. There's so many different school boards. Big city school boards tend to have more women than rural school boards. But whatever the case, it does seem like this is an area where women actually do perceive politics to be something they're qualified for and something that is relevant to their world and that can lead to positive change. So you see that when they're when they're perceiving it this way, they're happy to run. And, and you know, I don't know if you you know, been to a school board or cover a school board meeting, but these are not always pretty um, things to see. So school politics can be just brutal. People are lunatics when it comes to their kids and their schools. It's very emotional. So it's not like it's a cakewalk, you know, but here we have, you know, this large group of women, tens of thousands of women who have chosen to run for office, who have won. But what we find in the research is that most women and men who serve on school boards don't use it as a, as a stepping stone to higher office. They don't think of it that way. But what we think is that they could be convinced <laughs> to think of it that way. And certainly many people who go on to state legislature have come from the school boards, just not enough women have been really actively recruited this way, partly because most school board races are nonpartisan. So it's not a place where party members really focus, but that maybe is a tactical error. Mm-hmm. And what do you think it would take to to get those women um, to consider running for higher office, Jennifer? Is it is it a question of, Oh, well, I know about education, but I don't know about other things that a mayor has to deal with, like infrastructure or finance. Is it is a case of just bringing people in to do seminars on certain topics, or is it just making them 
um, more aware that they have the skills already to to be a candidate? What, what do you think, um, if someone wanted to, to really focus in on, on school boards, uh, what are the steps that, that would be taken? I think the most effective route would be to say to these people on the school board, look, there are hundreds of thousands of other local elected positions too. You know what it takes to run a campaign. You know what it takes to speak in public. You know what it takes to deal with your constituents, sometimes in hostile settings. You'd be great for city council or town council or county coroner or auditor or whatever else. So often when we've asked women whether they think they're qualified, they mention 16 or 17 objective qualifications that they would need, you know, that no candidate would ever have, a law degree and an MBA and a PhD and policy experience and public speaking experience. And you ask men and they say, oh, I'm qualified because I have passion and vision. And so I think leveling that playing field means conveying to women who have demonstrated that they already have passion and vision and have used it fruitfully to just take that to the next level. I worry when we, I'm not suggesting that we have a bunch of candidates out there who don't know anything, but I worry that if we offer one seminar, the expectation is that we're going to offer 765 and they're going to have to be experts in every single area. And I think what a lot of candidates realize once they get elected is that once they get elected, they learn specifically what they need to know. I can also tell you from firsthand experience, I ran for Congress in 2006 in Rhode Island's second congressional district in a Democratic primary against a popular incumbent. And we had two televised debates. And I was petrified of these debates. I thought, oh my gosh, they're going to give me all of these gotcha questions about every single policy. And I studied and I studied and I practiced and I practiced. And the media and the press would say that I won both of those debates. But I can also tell you that in two televised debates, I never had to speak, and this is for Congress, I never had to speak about any one issue for more than 45 seconds. So to convey to most people running for office that you do not have to be so well-versed on every single topic that could ever come to you, I think is important in and of itself. Can, can we just pause here? Can you explain why you ran for office and, and what about that was surprising? Because you knew like maybe too much about the <laughs> obstacles, what's in your head, what's true, what's not true. What made you decide to run? I mean, and what, what was surprising in addition to the fact that you had to speak no more than 45 <laughs> seconds about anything substantive? Um, I mean, for me, I had always been somebody that thought she would run for office. My parents always told me that I should, that I could be president of the United States. I ran for office in school. Um, and I figured that at some point I would run for office later in life. I was an untenured assistant professor at Brown at the time in Rhode Island. I had no interest in running. Um, that was not, that was a potentially terrible career move. It worked out okay, but it was a high risk move. Um, but the incumbent was ardently anti-choice in a very, very blue district. And I was very passionate about that issue. Um, and it wasn't only his record on choice, it was also the way that he was voting regarding the war in Iraq. The Terry Schiavo case had just happened, and he was one of the only Democrats that stayed in Washington and voted to intervene with the Republicans. And I just felt he wasn't representing the district. But because he was an entrenched incumbent, nobody from the establishment was ever going to run against him. And I had these students at Brown at the time who were getting ready to graduate who were smarter and worked harder than anybody I had met up until that point and probably since. And it became possible that if I ran, they would delay law school and work on this campaign. And it became something that was feasible in a way that had all of the stars aligned right away, um, not aligned right away, I don't think would have been. So it was that policy um, piece that ultimately led me to throw my hat into the ring. But it wasn't that I woke up one morning and said, oh, he's anti-choice, I must run. It was that there had been this seed planted decades earlier, and then it was just looking for, um, you know, an opportunity for it to, for it to flourish. 
Amanda, what was so striking in some of the interviews that you did for this article with women um, considering running for office was they got over this fear of not being qualified um, after this election. <laughs> yeah, ironically, multiple women said to me, so I went to a training in Ames, Iowa, and uh, we have a really nice video about some of these women, but, but what some of them said to me was, you know, uh, I never thought I'd just qualified. You know, I'm, I'm just a lawyer. I have student loans. I'm a single mother. But then this guy gets elected president. And I'm thinking, hey, I mean, at least I've read the Constitution. You know, like I, I know what's I know the law, you know. So it's so suddenly their bar for what was qualified um, changed. And so it was for some women, particularly on the left, obviously kind of galvanizing in, a, in an ironic way. It's so interesting. And I guess the, the final takeaway and the thought that you end the piece on, which I, I think is so interesting and worth mulling over, is this idea that um, it's almost sort of Machiavellian idea of how we could entice more women to run for office by changing the way we talk about politics and, and what recruiters emphasize about politics to women. Can you talk a little bit about how you think politics could be reframed? This is actually my favorite part because I'm just a huge nerd, but I basically got really fascinated by this somewhat obscure research into how, to, how you can convince women to become engineers and computer scientists. So it turns out that much like with politics, women have an idea in their heads about what those jobs entail, and the, the ideas are not communally oriented, is the phrase. So you know, the idea is computer scientists work in cubicles, in isolation. They're just self-interested. They don't help make the world a better place. Um, same idea with engineers. If you, if you introduce them to you know, even a short paragraph describing a day in a life of a programmer who actually works on things that affect the world, and it, most developers work very collaboratively, in fact, in computer science. So they're constantly in meetings and interacting. And then they see that job differently. So what universities have found is if they start a, a, a minor in humanitarian engineering, which works on, you know, sort of making the world a better place, building things that help people, they suddenly get 50% women in their engineering programs. So this is fascinating because it has to do with our perception. And it turns out our perceptions are more malleable than we think. And so this is so relevant, obviously, to what we've been talking about with politics, because women see politicians as self-interested and not helping make the world a better place. And, and that's understandable. Um, but in fact, politicians are supposed to be helping make the world a better place. Like by definition, I think it's an even easier case to make than for engineers probably. So there has been some early research experimenting with this and reframing politics as a way to help make your community a better place and work collaboratively to solve problems. And when you do that, young women right away become just as interested as young, and as young men in running for office. So whether you can do that at scale, I don't know, but it certainly seems to me that if you're recruiting women in college or approaching women on the school board or even talking to your daughter about politics, it's something to think about is how you frame it. Just because it's being perceived as this master of the universe, you know, narcissistic, um, you know, profession doesn't mean that it is that way, and most particularly at the state and local level, nor does it mean it should be right. So reframing it is a way right away to appeal to women's imagination. And that's not just a theory, you saw that actually play out in the medical profession. That's right. So one of the fascinating statistics that you can look at is the percentage of women who, the percentage of medical degrees that were earned by women in the 1960s, early 1960s, was like less than 5%. Um, and, and the same with dentistry and law school and 
And, and what you saw is all of those things are now at 50% or more. So over time, as people, the barriers to entry, right? I mean, women weren't allowed in a lot of med schools and law schools at some point, but as they were allowed in and as they perceive medicine, obviously, as a way to help people make the world a better place, then they become interested. And it's not that they're not interested, as Jen has found, it's not that they're not interested in power and uh, money and influence. They're, they're just as interested in that increasingly as, as young men. But they also feel this need, probably because they've been encouraged their whole lives to 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 say that they're doing something that makes the world a better place. You know, whether they are or not, there is this pressure. I think that girls face more maybe than boys um, to to be doing something good for the world. You know, and again, I don't want to suggest that girls are better than boys. I have a son. Like I don't, you know, I don't see the world that way. But. Um, but we live in a world of, of subtle influences. And so we know this appeals to women. And, and what's amazing is that, you know, computer science, there are actually more women studying computer science in the 80s than there are now on a percentage basis. So you, these things can fluctuate and they don't always go in the direction you'd think. Um, there's not a slow and steady progress for women in politics the way that we assume. You have to intervene and you have to be creative. So we have we have the recipe now. We we have the poll. So as a final thought, Jennifer, what, what does your gut tell you? Are, are we going to stay stuck at 20 percent on, on Capitol Hill? Or is there enough of a spark here in 2017 that that you'll actually see some some real change, whether at the federal or, or state and local level? My sense is that we'll see record numbers of Democratic female candidates and as a result, a record number of women serving. But I'm not expecting 33% or 40% or 50%. And I also want to underscore that those record numbers, I would predict, are going to be not simply because these women who are attending the Women's March decided, oh, I'm going to investigate how to get my name on the ballot. It's because there are very well-oiled machines that operate as organizations that are trying to encourage women to run for office who are targeting this very small sliver of women who are especially active and willing this time around because of Trump. So those institutional changes and the targeted recruitment are what's going to, I think, ultimately lead to this record. Now, the good news is that Donald Trump has activated Democratic women, and that's a key ingredient for a longer-term recipe for women's representation and more female candidates. But that's only one ingredient. The other one is this recruitment. And the last point I'd make here is that Again, most people don't wake up one morning and decide that they're going to run for office. They might wake up one morning and say, I cannot believe this man was elected president. I'm going to a march. Or I cannot believe this man was elected president. I'm writing a check to Planned Parenthood. But I think we need to be realistic about what it takes to throw your hat into the ring to actually run and have our expectations probably pulled back a little bit from I think, what a lot of this conventional and popular discourse is suggesting. Mm. And I guess as a final thought, I would say that even if all those Democratic women do jump in the ring, you know, it's a majority Republicans in both House and Senate. And in order to get anywhere near gender parity in uh, federal politics, Republican women are going to have to run in larger numbers. And we did do a, a very fascinating conversation with a group of three very smart Republican women strategists on this very question and, and what it'll take to get more Republican women in the ring. And we have that as a podcast episode on women rules. So I hope you'll tune into that one as well. Um, thank you, Amanda. And thank you, Jennifer, so much for joining us. And I hope everyone will read your fascinating project and the um, 
the details of this really important national poll. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you.